Well, 2021 is finally here, and that means it's time for us to turn our attention to a new theme for the year. Now, we introduced this theme last month, and the theme for 2021 is Go and Do. You may recall that we've chosen this theme as a successor to our 2020 theme of vision because we don't want to be guilty of spending so much time focused on what we are looking at that we forget to move. We noted that after the disciples witnessed Jesus' ascension in Acts chapter 1, they stood there gazing into heaven when all of a sudden, a couple of mess- messengers appeared and encouraged them, challenged them, prompted them to get moving on their mission. They were so busy staring at the sky that they failed to get to work. And, and we're capable of that. We're capable of being so focused on what we're looking at that we forget that it's time to go and do. So we're following up last year's theme of vision with this year's theme of go and do so that we can emphasize and, and, and implement this idea of not standing still, but of striking out. And we plucked this terminology of go and do. We plucked it straight out of the parable of the Good Samaritan. You'll see, if you'll turn to Luke chapter 10, verse 37, you'll see these two terms at the conclusion of that well-known parable. After Jesus had asked who proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers, and after that teacher of the law responded correctly by by indicating the one who did something tangible for the injured man was the one who proved to be a neighbor, that's when Jesus said, you go and do likewise. As we get started with our Go and Do theme for 2021, I want us to turn our attention to the one significant word in that verse that we didn't use in our theme. The word likewise. You go and do likewise. Likewise is a term that simply means to to do in the same way. So when Jesus said, you go and do likewise, he was saying, you go and do in the same way. Thus, the the likewise principle, if you will, is a call to imitation, a call to follow an example, a call to resemble someone or something. And in the specific context of the parable of the Good Samaritan, it is a call to resemble, a call to imitate, a call to follow the example of the Samaritan 
who did something for the injured man. But in the greater context of Scripture, the likewise principle applies to Jesus Christ. In the greater context of Scripture, the one we are to imitate, the one we are to resemble, the, the one we are to follow is, in fact, Jesus. After the great confession where Peter acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is the one we're supposed to follow. After washing the disciples' feet, Jesus said in John chapter 13 and verse 15, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Jesus is the standard. Jesus is the one we are to exemplify. And then if you journey through Scripture and come to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, we're told that Christ left us an example so that we might follow in His steps. And in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6, we're told that whoever says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Paul called on the Christians in Corinth to be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1. And then he instructed the, the Christians in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1 to be imitators of God. The whole of Scripture is saying, hey, you need to do likewise when it comes to Christ. You need to be like Jesus. You need to go and do like him. And so we're going to spend the first several weeks of this year engaged in a study of the life of Jesus. Because he's the one we're supposed to go and do like. We're going to spend several weeks looking at what Jesus did so that we can understand what we should be doing. But before we start looking at the specifics of Jesus' life and, and, and we start focusing on, on what he did, I think we need to deal with one thing first. Oftentimes when we talk about following the example of Christ, we reach this point where we just say, well, he was perfect. I can't be perfect. How can I ultimately follow him? Somewhere along the way, we reach this plateau where we just say, nope, it's not possible to imitate Christ anymore. He's so far above me that I can't be like that. So the first thing I really want us to do as we investigate the life of Christ is understand that Jesus emptied himself so that we could imitate him. So turn again to Philippians chapter 2 with me. 
And look at this passage that we read just a moment ago with our scripture reading. Because we need to acknowledge what Jesus did in order to be the one we imitate. It's in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul instructed us to have the same mind as Christ. He's calling on imitation here. He's calling on the likewise principle. And then he says this about Jesus, that although Jesus existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. What Paul is saying is that in order to be fully human, Jesus had to, had to voluntarily divest himself of certain rights, privileges, and prerogatives of deity. Now, this does not mean that Jesus gave up his divinity. It does not mean that he stopped being God. Instead, it means that he emptied himself of all those attributes that would have rendered his human experience less than human. In other words, Jesus gave up whatever he needed to give up as deity so that he could experience humanity in its fullest form. And this morning, I want you to consider what Jesus gave up, what divine privileges he relinquished in order to become human. And the first is this. Jesus gave up the privilege of immortality. Now, understand this. When I say that Jesus gave up these privileges, it was only temporarily. It was only in his human form. I want you to think about immortality for a moment, though. If you journey over to the book of 1 Timothy, you'll see that Paul bookends this letter with descriptions of God as immortal. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17, he wrote, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And then at the end of that letter, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, he refers to God as the only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. Now, what is immortality? Well, to help us define that, let's start with the term mortal. To be mortal means to be subject to death, or even to be subject to time restraints. Therefore, to be immortal is to not be subject to death and to not be subject to time. Since God is immortal, according to Scripture, He is not subject to death. He cannot die. And He is not subject to time. He has always been and He will always be. That's why He is referred to in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 6 as the beginning and the end. And that's why on the fourth day of creation, he had to make celestial lights to separate the day from the night and to serve as signs to mark the seasons and days and years, all because prior to creation, time, in the way that we know it, did not exist. And here's the point. We know that Jesus, according to John chapter 1 and verse 1, was with God and was God. 
Therefore, Jesus was immortal. He transcended time because he preceded time. Not only that, but John chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us that all things were made through Jesus. Not only did he transcend time, but he created time. So he knew what existence apart from time was like. But then we're told in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1 that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Then you can skip over to Mark chapter 15 and verse 37, and we're told that Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. In other words, the one who was the beginning and the end entered an existence in which he had a beginning and an end. And the one to whom a day was like a thousand years had to experience a situation in which a day was only 24 hours. So when Jesus emptied himself for that temporary experience on this earth, one of the divine privileges he gave up was the privilege of immortality. And that means that Jesus knows what it's like to deal with time. And Jesus knows what it's like to die. Jesus knows what it's like to experience life from the mortal perspective because he lived it. And Jesus gave up the privilege of immortality so that he could understand that aspect of our existence. In addition to that, Jesus gave up the privilege of omnipresence. Omnipresence is simply the ability to be everywhere at the same time. God is described as being omnipresent in Scripture. He's able to be everywhere all at once. You see this best in Psalm chapter 139, verses 7 through 10, where David described God's omnipresence so well. David writes this, he says, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol... You are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. What David is declaring is that there's nowhere God is not. That God is everywhere at the same time. He is omnipresent. And since Jesus, is, Jesus was with God and was God, according to John chapter 1 and verse 1, that means he too was omnipresent. He too transcended space like God. But then we're told in John chapter 1 and verse 14 that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. In so doing, he stopped being omnipresent and started being locatable. I want to read to you from Matthew chapter 15 and verse 29. This is not a significant verse. If you were reading the book of Matthew, you would not remember this verse. 
It's a narrative detail. This verse will never make your list of memory verses. This verse is a verse that you skim over, you read it, you obtain the information, and then you really don't ever think about it again. Here's what Matthew chapter 15 and verse 29 says. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. There's no theological significance to this verse with this one exception. That verse tells us that Jesus went, that Jesus walked, that Jesus sat down. And all of these physical actions remind us that Jesus inhabited a physical body that limited his movement and space. In other words, if Jesus was in Bethlehem, he couldn't be in Nazareth. And if Jesus was in Galilee, then he couldn't be in Jerusalem. He was confined to wherever his body was located. That means when Jesus entered the world as an infant, for the first and only time in all of eternity, deity was to some degree in one place at one time. See, Jesus gave up the privilege, gave up the privilege of omnipresence. That means he knows what it's like to have a human body. He knows what it's like to deal with distance. He knows what it's like to deal with the problems that come with a physical form. He knows what it's like to be you in this thing we call the human body. He knows what it's like to have to travel and walk and move He knows what it's like to be you because he emptied himself of the divine privilege of omnipresence. And he also emptied himself of the divine privilege of omnipotence. Now, hear me out before you start getting upset at this one. I know Jesus performed miracles. I know Jesus had the ability to to uh, feed 5,000 with just a, f a few pieces of bread and fish. He was able to walk on water. He was able to heal, heal, heal people. So I know many of you are sitting there thinking, how can I say he, he gave up omni omnipotence? Well, omnipotence means to be all-powerful. When we say that God is omnipotent, ultimately what we're saying is that he has unlimited, unlimited power and is therefore able to do anything that is in keeping with his nature. This is the trait of God that Jesus himself referenced when he said in Matthew chapter 19, verse 20, 26, that with God all things are possible because of his omnipotence. Of course, that means that Jesus, who was with God and was God, possessed omnipotence as well. So when I say that Jesus gave up the privilege of omnipotence, what I'm referring to is the fact that while on this earth, Jesus operated with limitations. 
Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says that Jesus partook of the same things as those who share in flesh and blood. In other words, he experienced life in a human body, as I've already referenced. And the human body has limitations. See, Jesus experienced the physical limitation of hunger. Early in his ministry, we read about his 40-day retreat in the wilderness during which he ate nothing. And as a result, we're told, Matthew, Luke chapter 4, verse 2, he was hungry. Then a day after his triumphal entry, you can go over to Mark chapter 11 and verse 12, and it tells us that he was hungry, so he approached a fig tree to obtain something to eat, only to find out that its fruit was not in season. Jesus grew hungry. Like some of you right now who are wondering how much longer this sermon will go so you can get to the restaurant today. Jesus, and I never saw anybody shake their head harder than Brother Iverson over here. <laughs> Jesus grew hungry. Jesus also grew tired. You can read about how in uh, John chapter 4, Jesus was traveling through Samaria and he stopped at a well. And he sat down next to the well to rest because he was tired from his journey. You can read in Mark chapter 4 and verse 38, when the storm on the Sea of Galilee arose, Jesus was in the stern of the boat asleep on the cushion, literally sleeping through a storm. Jesus experienced that physical limitation of fatigue. And Jesus experienced the physical limitation of thirst. As he rested by that well in Samaria, John chapter 4 and verse 7 tells us that he asked a woman to give him a drink. And as he hung on the cross at Calvary, John chapter 19 and verse 28 tells us that he said, I thirst. And it was then that the soldiers gave him a sponge full of sour wine to drink. Jesus experienced the physical limitation of thirst as well. So whether we're talking about hunger or fatigue or thirst, Jesus experienced all of those. When Jesus took on human form, when he came in flesh and blood, he gave up the privilege of omnipotence to some degree because he existed in a life where he had limitations. And he did that so that he would know what it's like for you and I when weakness takes over our human form. So that he could share in the experience of those who are made up of flesh and blood. And Jesus also gave up the privilege of untempt ability. I've mentioned before that one of my favorite things about being a preacher is I get to make up words. And today I'm making up a word. Untemptability. Untemptability is the term I'm using to describe what James says about God in James chapter 1 and verse 13. He says, God cannot be tempted by evil or with evil. And since Jesus and the Father are one, then by default, Jesus cannot be tempted with evil, right? But you already know where this one's going. 
You're familiar with Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, the two accounts that we have of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Those 40 days he spent out there as Satan tempted him. We know that he was tempted to turn stones into bread, to jump from the peak of the temple, and to bow down to Satan. We're familiar with those temptation accounts. But do you ever read about the the temptations, those three temptations in particular, and think to yourself, how do those qualify him for knowing what it's like for me to be tempted? I, I don't know about you, but I've never been tempted to turn stones into bread. And I love bread. That's part of the problem. If I go to Carabas, that bread with that oil, or take me to a cheesecake factory, brown bread, not white, leave the white alone, brown bread only. You know what I'm talking about. I love bread, but I've never been tempted to turn stones into it. I'm not the biggest fan of heights either. I can go up to some high places and enjoy them, But I've never been tempted to jump off of anything in my life. I'm not tempted to go skydiving as I look over here at the Howard family. I'm not tempted to go bungee jumping. I'm not tempted to do anything that involves the risk of heights. And to my knowledge, I have not been tempted in the presence of Satan to bow down to him. Though that one can probably be a little bit trickier. So do you ever look at these temptations and go, how does this relate to me? How does he know what it's like to be tempted the same way that I am? Think about it. Jesus never went to middle school. How does he know what that's like? Jesus was never married. How does he know what that was like? Jesus never experienced the technologies we have here in the 21st century. How does he know what that was like? Jesus never got quarantined from a pandemic. Oftentimes, we do this. We go to 1 John chapter 2. We look at verses 15 through 17, and we see that all sin is categorized into three areas. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And then we make this association that all three temptations of Jesus fit into one of those categories. The temptation to turn stones to bread was how Jesus was tempted with the lust of the flesh. The temptation to bow down to Satan in order to receive the kingdoms of the world was how he was tempted with the lust of the eyes. The temptation to jump off the temple and be rescued by angels was how he was tempted with the pride of life. And that's not a bad answer. But maybe, just maybe, there's more to this series of temptations than we recognize. Maybe Satan was challenging Jesus at his weakest point. His humanity. Maybe Satan was trying to interrupt Jesus' human experience by tempting him to use his access to divine powers. Maybe Satan was trying to get Jesus to go back and grab some of those things he had emptied himself of. Maybe Satan was testing Jesus to see if he was really willing to do this human thing. 
Because in these three temptations, it seems as though Satan was offering Jesus a way to use his divine powers to avoid suffering the weakness of humanity. As one author said, he tempted Jesus toward the good parts of being human without the bad, to savor the taste of bread without being subject to the fixed rules of hunger and agriculture, to confront risk with no danger, to enjoy fame and power without the prospect of painful rejection. In short, to wear a crown, but not a cross. See, I think the temptations may be more complex than we can understand on the surface. And that maybe when Jesus emptied himself, one of the divine privileges he gave up was the privilege of untemptability. Or to say it another way, the privilege of protection from temptation. And he did it so that he would know what it's like to face temptation, just like you and I. Because as Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says, he was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus gave up the privilege of untemptability. And there's one last one I want to mention. Jesus gave up the privilege of sinlessness. Now, before you grab your pitchforks and torches, storm the stage, and run me out of here like a heretic, let me explain what I mean. Scripture clearly teaches that Jesus never sinned. We just referenced Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 that specifically says that Jesus lived without sin. You can journey over to 1 Peter chapter 2, and in verse 22, Peter says that he committed no sin. And Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14 says that he offered himself without blemish to God. Another reference to his sinlessness. So it's quite obvious that Scripture teaches that Jesus never committed a sin. But when I say that Jesus gave up the privilege of sinlessness, I'm not claiming that Jesus committed sin. Instead, I'm referring to the fact that he became sin. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 that I'm appealing to. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 says that for our sake, he, a reference to God, made him, a reference to Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In that passage, Paul tells us that in order to fulfill God's mission, Jesus had to become sin. And that means that Jesus knows what it's like to endure the consequences of sin. Not because he sinned, but because, as Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 20, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And when Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, he endured the ultimate consequence of sin. The ultimate consequence of sin is separation from God. And such a separation is evident at Calvary when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when that darkness settled on the land for six hours, 
You can see that separation that's happening right then and there. And I want you to think about this. If Jesus never left heaven, he would never be wounded for our sins. If Jesus never left heaven, our sins would never be placed on his body. If Jesus never left heaven, then we would still have to assume the eternal consequences of our sins. So in making that decision to empty himself, he not only emptied himself of immortality and omnipresence and omnipotence and untemptability, but he ultimately emptied himself of sinlessness as he voluntarily accepted the punishment for sins he never committed. And he did it so that we could receive righteousness we never deserved. You see, everything Jesus did was intentional. Jesus understood what it was going to take to obtain salvation and understood what it was going to take for him to become our sympathizing high priest. He was willing to do it, to take on this human form, to divest himself of certain divine privileges for a temporary period of time just so he could accomplish those very goals. And so we come to Hebrews chapter 4. And we learn that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, the whole point of this sermon is for us to come to the realization that Jesus experienced life fully human. He set aside certain divine privileges that would have prevented him from becoming our sympathizing high priest. And that means we can be certain that he endured life just like us. And as a result, we can have confidence that it is possible for us to be just like him. Will we be perfect? No. But can we go and do like Jesus went and did? Yes. But here's the thing. In order for us to be like Jesus, we're going to have to do something that Jesus did. We're going to have to empty ourselves. Not of divine privileges, but of ourselves. As I was preparing this lesson, I was, I was reminded of a, of a book I read in elementary school. A book many of you probably have read I don't know if it's still required reading anymore, but the wonderful book, Where the Red Fern Grows. And I remember in that story, there is a point at which Billy has his two dogs and he's ready to train them for raccoon hunting. But in order to do that, he really needed a raccoon hide, something for them to pick up the scent of. 
but he didn't know how to catch one. His grandfather told him that if he'd go out and drill a hole in a log and then drive some nails at an angle in, uh, surrounding that hole, it would create a trap that a raccoon would not get out of. Because what he would do is drop some silver object, or some, some shiny object, I should say, like a nickel, into the hole. The raccoon would come along, see it, reach down, grab that nickel, and with his closed paw holding on to that nickel, would not be able to pull it out of the hole because the nails would be penetrating his hand. And Billy thought to himself, well, all he'd have to do is let go of the nickel and then he'd be able to pull his hand out. Seems easy enough. But his grandfather told him that's the thing about raccoons. Once they grab hold of something they want, they're unwilling to let go. I think that's a metaphor for you and I. That oftentimes we're holding on to something that if we'll just let go of it, we can move forward. What's your shiny object today that is preventing you from going and doing? What's your shiny object that's preventing you from being like Jesus? What's your shiny object that you're just unwilling to let go of? Do you remember what Jesus said about shiny objects? He didn't use the word shiny objects. But he used this phrase. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Because Jesus understood this about us, that we're a lot like raccoons. That we have this tendency to want to hold on to things that we think are so valuable but in comparison to our souls they're worthless and he's tried to get us to understand the extraordinary value of our soul and this morning we look at the example of jesus to not only understand that he knows what it's like to be us but also so that we can understand that we have to be like him. And it starts by a willingness to give up whatever will prevent you from pursuing him. If you need to give something up today, we invite you to come. If you need to start your life as a follower of Christ today, we invite you to come. You can give up your old self and put on a new self right now by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God, by repenting of your sins, and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you need to make that decision today or if you need to correct something in your life today, then we offer this invitation because we want to let go of the shiny objects and pursue life in the one who ultimately matters. Won't you join us in that journey today while together we stand and sing?